Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Private Eye's 50th year. Um, our events at the National are where we try and take Private Eye from the page onto the stage. And I'm uh, helped tonight by the fabulous cast. And could you welcome them one by one? Mr. Lewis McLeod. <laughs> Miss Jan Ravens. Mr. John Sessions. And Mr. Harry Enfield. Uh, thank you very much indeed. And um, we're delighted to be here on this lovely austerity set <laughs> designed by the Chancellor. This is what you're going to be living in the next 20 years. Um, but we're here not to be gloomy, but to, to celebrate um, Privatise 50th year. So it was a big year, and the biggest story was, of course, the hacking story. And Private Eye covered this sympathetically. <laughs> Exclusive to all newspapers. I was not hacked. Admits shaken celebrity. By our media staff, Phil Space. A well-known celebrity who cannot be named for legal reasons, i.e. you haven't heard of him, admitted last night that his phone had at no stage been hacked by News of the World journalists. He told police... When I read nothing about myself in the paper, it finally dawned on me that something peculiar was going on. <laughs> I contacted Scotland Yard to complain and was told that they were not interested. The officer told me there were thousands of celebrities who were not on the list, and I would just have to take my turn. The celebrity continued... It was a shocking lack of intrusion into my private life. <laughs> I am looking for compensation in the region of £100,000 at the very least. Or maybe I will settle for a small mention in the TV column. <laughs> a spokesman for the News of the World said... This was clearly the work of a single rogue journalist who failed to hack into the celebrity's phone. We take these allegations very seriously and we'll look carefully at any evidence before destroying it. <laughs> um, Private Eye obviously does cover the big stories. The French satirical magazine, Charlie Hebdo, puts the Prophet Mohammed on its cover and was burnt down. Private Eye rather more bravely, I thought, attacked the Church of England. Uh, this is our alternative Rocky Horror service book, um, which is the C of E's service book, which we print in full. This is a service for the closure of a cathedral. Um, and in this um, scenario, the canon will be played by Harry Enfield, the dean will be played by Lewis, and the bishop by John Sessions. A service for the closure of a cathedral. Brothers and sisters, you are gathered here together in your tents to make your voices heard in protest at the recent failings of global capitalism. Yes, indeedy! You are right welcome here, as the church has a long tradition of helping the poor and crusading for social justice wheresoever it may be needful. Thanks be to you, O Canon. There now follows a reading from the Book of Health and Safety. <laughs> Regulations, <laughs> Chapter
chapter 7, page 75, <laughs> paragraph 13b. The erection of tented structures within 10 meters of the cathedral's main access point creates an unacceptable safety hazard to visitors. Insofar as the tent guy ropes may cause serious injuries to worshippers who are not covered by the ecclesiastical church insurance policies <laughs> issued by Messrs. Whittam Strobes of Chichester, ha ha. <laughs> the dean will here take over from the canon who will resign. The dean will close the cathedral until further notice. O oh Lord, close our doors. Result! Let us now pray for the cathedral and its revenues that are so severely stricken by this well-meaning but ultimately rather irritating protest. <laughs> Let us pray for the gift shop with its agreeable postcards <laughs> and reasonably priced audio guide, which is now lying idle. Let us pray for the coffee shop with its excellent carrot cake and organic smoothies. And let us pray above all for those entrusted with collecting the admission fees, which usually amount to over £16,000 per day. Oh, capitalist bastards! That is indeed a very fair comment. At this point, the dean will also resign. The bishop will then take over and reopen the cathedral. Oh, Lord, open our doors. Again. It's now time for another reading from the Gospel according to St. John Snow. <laughs> Chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. And so, the bearded idealists invaded the temple as a protest against the moneylenders. But, unfortunately, the priests were then cast out of the temple and the moneylenders continued business as usual. <laughs> we will now sing our final hymn. There is a green hill far away. Perhaps you would like to go and camp there instead. <laughs> Private Eye, of course, doesn't just make things up. <laughs> Certainly what I'm going to tell Lord Levinson. Um, we also run columns which are entirely real. Um, Dumb Britain, for example, are real answers to real questions on real quiz shows. And all of these are genuine, and they come from the weakest link. And we're delighted tonight to have Anne Robinson with us to ask the questions. So... <laughs> first king of England to speak on the radio? Henry VIII. <laughs> In film comedy, the partner of Lou Costello was Bud who? Holly. <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan's opera, The Yeoman of the Guard, is set in which London landmark? Canary Wharf. <laughs> which city in northern England is the only one that begins with the letter Y? Wakefield. <laughs> In US history, during the Great Depression, parts of the Midwest afflicted by drought and high winds became known as the what bowl? Super. <laughs> A ship sailing south from Land's End in Cornwall will first hit land where? Australia. <laughs> Which Kate 
a former Labour Minister for Sport, is now head of the Countryside Alliance. Blanchett. <laughs> In the early 15th century, Owain Glendower led a rebellion against the ruling English in which country? China. <laughs> the last German offensive of World War II in the Ardennes was known as the Battle of the what? The Boyne. <laughs> in Greek mythology, what was the name of the Titan who bore the weight of the world on his shoulders? Anthrax. <laughs> Which country and western singer's biography is called Man in Black? Dolly Parton. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, private eye readers, of course, are not dumb. Um, we try and cater for the highbrow market, and we cover opera. Uh, we run a regular Radio 3 Highlights column. This is Opera Highlights, and it's an account of Mozart's uh, famous opera, Don Berlusconi. The Don is in high spirits after a lavish party in the Palazzo Fornicazione. <laughs> Attended by a large chorus of nubile courtesans and parliamentary advisers who performed the legendary Italian folk dance La Bunga Bunga. <laughs> but his idyll is disrupted by the sinister figure of Queen of the Right, Angela Merkel, who berates Silvio for his reckless life and tells him to mend his ways or face eternal damnation. The Don, however, laughs her to scorn, singing Nessun Reforma. <laughs> but it is too late. An army of technocrats invade the palazzo singing Billioni e tre. You are 300 billion euros in debt. <laughs> and drag Don Berlusconi into the fiery abyss. The peasants rejoice in the downfall of Silvio and the elevation of his replacement, Mario Monti, singing Viva Monty Python. <laughs> Always look on the bright side of life. But their rejoicing is short-lived as a voice is heard from the depths, Forza Italia. It is the robber baron himself vowing to return to life and wreak his revenge. Coming up soon on Radio 3, a new opera by Richard Strauss-Kahn, Infidelio. <laughs> performed by the New York Metropolitan Police Opera. But first, as part of Radio 3's program to broadcast the complete works of Stephen Fry, Tweet number K472. <laughs> Fry composed this at the age of 51 in Norfolk, and it instantly became one of his best-loved tweets. It starts with the immortal phrase, Bless your bottom. I'm going to have a cup of tea now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's quite enough Radio 3. <laughs> Private Eye is known not just for its highbrow coverage, but also for its life columnists. And this includes the wonderful Polly Filler. She's um, there at the front line of modern motherhood, juggling life and career. And this is her view of half-term hell. The drive back from our holiday home in Paul Roger in Cornwall to Primrose Hell <laughs> should take seven hours. But last week, at the end of half-term, it took longer than the retreat from Moscow and made it look like a teddy bear's picnic. Picture the scene in the filmmobile as it crawled along the motorway with toddler Charlie screaming in the back before being sick into his new Captain Haddock rucksack. Talk about blistering typhoons of vomit. <laughs> Honestly, cooped up in a tin box smelling of regurgitated Heston Blumenthal little chef snail porridge for 12 hours. 
with a distressed child endlessly asking, are we there yet? Surely any idea, any woman's idea of hell. <laughs> no wonder the au pair was hysterical by the time they finally arrived in London. <laughs> Thank goodness I sensibly flew back from Newquay, thus avoiding all those ghastly middle-class people with holiday homes clogging up the roads with their smelly four-by-fours full of spoilt, nauseous infants. <laughs> For some unknown reason, when I asked the au pair to disinfect the car seat, the annoying weepy handed in her notice, saying she'd rather go back to her village in Thailand. I told her not to be so silly, it's all been washed away in the floods. <laughs> really? Then the drippy girl dissolved into floods herself, of tears. If anyone has a worse half-term than that, don't let me know. Polly We're very lucky at Private Eye to have on our staff the very talented parodist Craig Brown. And it's now time to bring him on to try and get him to reveal the secrets of parody. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Craig Brown. Thank you very much. Um, the secret is that there is only one secret, which is do as little as possible. So you can just give them enough uh, rope to hang themselves. Um, as an example of this, I'd like to cite uh, Margaret Drabble's recent memoir, which I was reading, as one does, uh, and <laughs> she, um, she wrote, halfway through, I found this sentence, uh, which introduced us to her incredibly boring Aunt Phil. They always have to have an eccentric aunt. Uh, and I thought you couldn't um, make this better in terms of being boring. This is the sentence as she wrote it. I maintain, brackets, though she might in truth query this, close brackets, that it was I who usefully introduced my Aunt Phil to Scampion Chips at an excellent but now defunct castellated hostelry overlooking the Bristol Channel at Linton in 1973. <laughs> now, I read that and I reread and I thought, could someone have not only published this but written it? And every single word, you couldn't change Scampion Chips or Castellated Hostelry or Linton or 1973. They're unimprovable. <laughs> and so my, my technique, which is uh, often the technique I use, is just to, to use the first paragraph or the first sentence just as the same uh, as, as written uh, and then riff on it. And so this is, I'll zip through her actual sentence and then I'll just uh, carry on a riff for a while. I maintain, though she might in truth query this, that it was I who usefully introduced my Aunt Phil to Scampion Chips at an excellent but now defunct castellated hostelry overlooking the Bristol Channel at Link Link Linton in 1973. Or was it 1974? <laughs> Conceivably, and here I am, metaphorically speaking, sticking my neck out, it was 1972 or even 1971. Though even if it was 1971, then it might not have been the castellated hostelry that we ate in as a useful visit to my local library yesterday afternoon between 3.30 and 4.23pm <laughs> confirmed me in my suspicion that the hostelry in question was in fact closed for the greater part of 1971 owing to a refurbishment programme. In that case, and if it really was 1971, which frankly seems increasingly unlikely <laughs> given the other dates available. <laughs> Craig 
Craig will be back. Meanwhile, Private Eye must, must get back to politics. And there was a big strike yesterday, and Private Eye tried to cover the attitude of the leader of the Labour Party to this particular strike. We do this in Private Eye through our, our celebrity column, Me and My Spoon. And in this one, Me and My Spoon interviewed Ed Miliband. Mr Miliband, where do you stand on the issue of spoons? Look, I'm all for spoons. <laughs> and the right of people to have spoons. But we have to accept that demanding too many spoons in the current climate serves no useful purpose. <laughs> so you're against spoons? No, I'm all for spoons and the right of people to have spoons. But we have to accept that demanding too many spoons in the current climate serves no useful purpose. Have spoons played a large role in your life? I don't think it's particularly helpful to look backward. What I think... <laughs> is important is that I'm all for spoons and the right of people to have spoons, but we have to accept that demanding too many spoons in the current climate serves no useful purpose. Do you give the same answer whatever question the interviewer asks? No, of course not. I'm all for spoons and the right of people to have spoons, but we have to accept that demanding too many spoons in the current climate serves no useful purpose. Has anything amusing ever happened to you in connection with a spoon? It's all very easy to laugh at spoon-related incidents, but what is more difficult is to be clear that I'm all for spoons and the right of people to... Thank you very much, Mr Miliband. <laughs> Next week, we'll be interviewing David Miliband about me and my spoon, which Ed stole from me and pretended it was his all along. <laughs> now, as it's our 50th uh, anniversary, it is probably time to congratulate ourselves, and Private Eye ran a series of, of heartfelt tributes um, from various famous people in our pages. The first from Peter Hitchens, the tough-talking and controversial Mail on Sunday columnist. If I have to read another word of praise for the magazine Private Eye on its 50th anniversary, I think I shall feel ill. It was, long ago, part of the Cultural Revolution that turned Britain into what it is now, a place where elderly Christians going about their everyday business are routinely beaten up by foul-mouthed, long-haired louts, drugged up on depraved television programmes such as Top of the Pops and the Wacky Races. <laughs> as a nation, we should hang our heads in shame, cock our pistols and do the decent thing and kill ourselves. <laughs> Tina Brown, the journalist who lives in America but has her finger right on the UK pulse. For the past 75 years, Private Eye newspaper has been a buzzy zeitgeist symbol of where things are really at, humour-wise, right here, right now, UK side. And hold the front page scoops keep on coming. High-placed insiders on the mega must-have glossy monthly mag still reminisce <laughs> about the day they caught topless minister George Profumo dating posh call girl Helen Keller. Ouch! <laughs> And Roy Hattersley, the former Labour deputy leader. Private Eye! <laughs> I was just clearing my throat! Private Eye is essentially an establishment product. Public schoolboys laughing at the world outside the dormitory in which they have so much fun at the expense of the peccadilloes and pretensions of lesser mortals. Some of us could not afford pyjamas, still less. <laughs> the Fortnum and Mason hampers that those pampered, private eye types 
kept under their four-poster beds, ready to be served by matron come the morning. But what do they care? Unlike the rest of us, their background has made them smug, arrogant, verbose. Smug, arrogant, <laughs> and verbose. And lastly, V.S. Naipaul, the distinguished, the distinguished elderly novelist. Sadly, Private Eye's reputation remains dismal. It is a bitter disappointment. I used to enjoy it, but I now see I was mistaken. No one laughs at it anymore. In fact, no one laughs at anything anymore, because nothing is funny. <laughs> the only writer who can still make me smile is Solzhenitsyn. <laughs> uh, enough of ourselves for the moment. Private Eye tried to cover the big stories, and the biggest of all was the lobbying scandal. Uh, you'll remember Dr. Fox and his friend Adam Werity. Uh, this um, led to a huge outburst of poetry, of all things, in Private Eye, and I'd like to share with you um, an extract from Old Possum's Book of Fat Cats by T.S. Eliot. Um, and this will be read by Harry. That Werity's a mystery bloke. His card says he's a spad. Turns out he's nothing of the sort. It looks like we've been had. But he's a friend of Liam Fox. Perhaps that should say was. They sometimes met three times a week. No reason, just because. <laughs> Werity, oh Werity, there's no one quite like Werity. Tonight he's broken any laws, although he looks quite ferrety. <laughs> but when the lobbyists are out or a freebie's in the air, look closely at the photos. Adam Werity was there. <laughs> he had meetings at the MOD, flew halfway round the world, I'll tell you what they talked about. You'll find your toes have curled. You won't spot him in the hallway. You won't meet him on the stair. But when you check the footage, Adam Werity was there. <laughs> he had access to the diary. He could tell you where and when. You could meet with Liam Fox and other quite important men. A four-star US general has some thoughts he'd like to share. In a restaurant in Florida, Get Werity out there. <laughs> Werity, oh Werity, what will he do now, Werity? A man who overlooked such um... <laughs> I'm going to start that again. Werity, oh Werity, what will he do now, Werity? A man who overlooked such unimportant things as Verity. Will businessmen still call him, and will anybody care if we find, when this is over, Adam Werity's not there? Um, back to the big stories, me and my spoon interviewing Kate Winslet. Kate, do you have a favourite spoon? Oh my God, I wasn't expecting this! <laughs> I never thought I'd be asked to do me and my spoon. <laughs> so, so do you have a favourite spoon? I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> I, it's just me doing me and my spoon. Thank you. Thank you all so much for asking me. This means so much to me. Do you have a favourite spoon? It's not about me and the spoon I like. It, it's about my fabulous producers and fellow fabulous actors and fabulous HBO and fabulous everyone who's been so fabulous. Oh, 
Oh, they should all be here talking about their spoons, not me. Do you have a favourite spoon? <laughs> well, I'd like to dedicate all my spoon answers to the person who made it all possible. My mum, because however old you are, you still need your mum's spoon, so... Mum, this is for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Has anything amusing ever happened to you in connection with a spoon? Oh, my God! Oh, my God! You're asking me if anything amusing has ever happened to me in connection with a spoon? Is this real? Oh, my God! Kate Winslet. Private Eye has rather suffered this year at the hands of what they call super injunctions, these injunctions that are taken out by people that you're not allowed to know about. On the whole, we try and respect this, but occasionally we just print the whole transcript. Um, this is the case of the anonymised celebrity, Mr XYZ, versus Ms Titsy Slapper. Uh, this is in the courts in front of Justice Coccolidi, and this is day 94. Um, in this case, the judge, the part will be taken uh, by Mr. John Sessions, and leading counsel, Sir Ephraim Hugefee, <laughs> will be taken by Harry Enfield. Um, my Lord, I represent Mr. XYZ, who is a world-famous household name. <laughs> I have never heard of him. <laughs> I am indebted to your honour. Uh, but let me assure you that he is a familiar face on the televisual device, <laughs> and his name would be recognized in public houses and betting shops across the land. But not in the Garrick Club, I wager. Ah, 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 ah. Very good, Your Honor. Ah, ah. But if I may return to the res ipsa, the appalling invasion of my client's privacy by Ms. Slapper, a topless model who... Uh, are there photographs available to help us... <laughs> to help us focus on this grotesque invasion of privacy? Uh, indeed there are, Malada. I refer you to bundle XXX. <laughs> Is it me, or is it hot in here? <laughs> Perhaps the usher would be so good as to open the window. I submit, my lord, uh, that were Miss Slapper's allegations against my client to be made public, not only would Mr XYZ become the subject of widespread ridicule and shame, but his wife would find out. <laughs> I'm terribly sorry, Mr Hugefee. I missed all that. I was still catching up with the contents of bundle <laughs> XXX. Very good, my lord. Your attention to detail is wholly admirable. <laughs> yes, there can be no greater human right for women than the freedom to be spared the truth about their errant partners, whomsoever they may be. Be they televisual celebrities, premium league footballers, or even members of the bench, such as myself. I hereby grant an order of gagendum absolutum superinjunctionem to be applied contra mundum and to last ad infinitum nemo exemptio 
in all territories, including the United States of America, Antarctica, and outer space. I'm indebted to you, my lord, and indeed to Mr. XYZ for his speedy settlement of my very, very large fees. <laughs> As to Miss Slapper, there is no restriction on publication of her name, or indeed her phone number, which perhaps you could provide me for the record. Ah, 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 very good, my lord. Ah, ah, ah. Ladies and gentlemen, Harry and... <laughs> that, of course, bears no relation to any celebrity or judge at all. Um, and away from the courts to sport, which, as many of you know, Private Eye take extremely seriously. It's one of our big areas. Um, <laughs> what we essentially do is reproduce what commentators say um, and then laugh at it. Um, <laughs> This is the column previously known as Coleman Balls, now called Commentator Balls, because it's gone slightly wider. And these are real remarks made by commentators. We'll start with football. This is Terry Butcher. People call it Armageddon, but I think it's worse than that. <laughs> Glenn Hoddle. Didier Drogba's had malaria, so he's not 100% fit for whatever reason. <laughs> Victoria Beckham on becoming pregnant. It will either be a boy, to add to the three boys we have, and we'll have half a five-a-side football team, if you add in David. <laughs> Charlie Nicholas. The old firm game is a one-off. There are seven of them this season. <laughs> John Terry. This lance has to be boiled. <laughs> Gary Neville. You can't really win as England manager unless you win. Clayton Blackmore. Ryan Giggs is two years older than he was two years ago. <laughs> Gary Neville, again. The, the, the trouble is, this sort of transfer window, it, it sort of creates a window where transfers have to be done. James Burridge. He sees this game by the scruff of his teeth. <laughs> Alan McAnally. That was never a penalty in a million planets. <laughs> Gabby Logan. So many chances being squandered. Is that the right adjective to use? <laughs> <laughs> Gary Neville, yet again. When you see Gareth Bale open his legs like that, it's a fantastic sight. <laughs> And it's not just football, cricket. This was Geoffrey Boycott. The wheel goes round and this time it's on the other foot. <laughs> Geoffrey Boycott again. I just said that in exactly the same but different words. <laughs> and Geoffrey Boycott again. You had to be born for a long time to play for Yorkshire. <laughs> and finally tennis, Boris Becker. Federer's balls look like watermelons out there. Uh, uh, and Sue Barker. If you let Rafa get on top of you, he's like an express train. <laughs> uh, time to welcome back Craig Brown. 
who this time is channeling the controversial columnist Rod Liddell, the man you read in the Sunday Times and the Spectator, if you're unlucky. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Rod Liddell. Sitting on a train the other day with my flies wide open so as to allow a nice bit of fresh air to circulate, <laughs> I was roundly upbraided for my action by a Guardian reading half-wit, apparently convinced that no one wanted to take a gander at my John Thomas. You couldn't make it up. <laughs> Whatever happened to good manners? I told this smug Burke in no uncertain terms that many a fair maiden, and a sprinkling of old puffs too, would pay good money to get an eyeful of my what's-it, and here I was, giving it to them free. But it's not over yet, not by a long chalk. Later in the day, I found myself the subject of an even more intense hammering from the Stop That At Once Brigade. And this time, what had I done wrong? Right first time. Smoky, an innocent ciggy, and in a park of all places. So now you're not even allowed to smoke in a park. So there I was, enjoying a quick puff in Hyde Park, when an uppity little park warden marched up to me like a tin pot Hitler and told me to stop what I was doing. So now we're not even allowed to smoke in a park, I said. Not without your clothes on, you're not, <laughs> he replied. They call this a free country, police state, more like. <laughs> now for the really big story of the year, which of course was the alternative voting system. You remember this, you were gripped by it at the time. Luckily at Private Eye, this quite complex system uh, was rendered palatable for us by our top columnist, the Deputy Prime Minister. Yes, we had Nick Clegg explain how that voting system actually worked. AV is the simplest and best voting system imaginable. Think of it like this. You're going into a sweet shop and you want to buy a Mars bar. You've always bought Mars bars because you feel at home with them and they've, they've been your choice of confectionery since you were old enough to go into a sweet shop. But then you find that the enlightened shopkeeper has decided not to let you have a Mars bar, your preferred option, and offers you a Twix instead. You quite like Twix, though not as much as you like Mars bars. <laughs> but you really hate Bounty because it's got coconut in. <laughs> so you agree that Twix is your second preference. Imagine your delight when the shopkeeper goes to his computer and after two days tells you that because most of the other Mars bar supporters have switched not to Twix but to Bounty, the country is now going to be run by the brand of chocolate bar you least like. It's that simple. <laughs> and it's that fair. That's why my first preference in this AV referendum will be to vote yes, but my second preference will be to vote no. <laughs> I hope that's clear. Lewis. Even bigger than AV was the hacking story, and I'm afraid we've got to return to it. Private Eye covered this um, not by our media correspondent, but by giving the story to our resident romantic novelist, Sylvie Crin, um, who wrote um, the romance um, Air of Sorrows, First Among Equals, all those. Um, but this time, she's writing one called Never Too Old. And if we can just take you into her romantic world. The story so far. Octogenarian Aussie oligarch Rupert Murdoch 
is desperately fighting to save his empire and has been summoned by a British Parliamentary Select Committee. Wake up, Lupert! <laughs> the shrill voice of his beloved Wendy stirred the elderly press potentate from his power snooze. You no sleep, old man! You ask a question! <laughs> the no-nonsense chairman of the inquiry, John Whittering-on, shuffled his papers expertly and fixed Rupert with his steely gaze. Would you like me to repeat the question, Mr Murdoch? The ageing Antipodean rubbed his new designer Calvin Mackenzie glasses on his striped Rebecca Brooks brother's tie. <laughs> what was it he was meant to say? What had the New York PR experts from bullshite whitewash and cover-up told him? <laughs> Don't bumble, or was it do humble? That once agile mind wandered. But then Rupert felt a sharp stiletto in the ribs from behind, and the soft voice of his peeking prawn cracker broke the silence. Remember, Lupert, you don't remember anything. <laughs> Rupert gathered himself once again, and his craggy features broke into a smile of relief as he answered the torquemada of the tea room. I'm afraid I don't remember anything, sport. Not even your bloody question. <laughs> but here's something I do remember. He added, banging the table with the flat of his hand. And that's how bloody useless you poms were at Gallipoli. <laughs> Drinking tea and eating cucumber sandwiches whilst Mel Gibson was single-handedly saving your <laughs> winking asses. But his fearless tirade was cut off by the chairman. Thank you very much indeed for coming, Mr Murdoch. We know that you're a very busy man. Sorry. Thank you. At that exact moment, a figure darted from the spectator's gallery, armed with a deadly custard pie and headed straight for the most powerful man in the world. There was a flash of pink, and as if in slow motion, the incredible Wendy soared through the air like an avenging angel, like a bird of prey, <laughs> and delivered a deadly karate chop to the assailant's head. You leave Lupert alone, fat boy! She cried, and then with a graceful somersault and reverse flip, she kicked the pie dish out of his hand and back into his ugly, hate-filled face. Now, big joke on you, funny guy. The would-be attacker crumpled to the floor, moaning in pain as Wendy shouted in triumph. I trained for years under legendary martial arts master, Bruce Ang Ree! <laughs> the committee rose to their feet and applauded in unison. Bravo! Yeah. Uh, is it time for lunch? <laughs> their cheers echoed through the dusty chambers of Westminster. Struth, Wendy, my little china chopstick, cried Rupert. My heart is bursting with pride. No heart burst yet, old man. I protect my investment. You save company first, then heart burst, OK? Jeez, Wendy, you got more prawn balls than all the blokes in this room put together. And then, feeling like a man ten years younger, Rupert asked for a glass of water and his tablets. <laughs> to be continued. Time to celebrate ourselves again in our 50th year. More tributes printed in the eye. First one from Alan Yentob, BBC Art Supremo and the man who knows everyone. It must have been Lucien Freud who first put me on to the magazine. 
I'd gone round to his studio with Salman, who'd just come from the amazing new movie by Werner, who brought Gwyneth along, and I was telling her about the stunning new novel by Jonathan, when Frank came up and told me that our mutual friend Jerry had worked out that I must have been Lucy, must have been Lucian, who put me on to private. I. Jeffrey Archer. When I founded Private Eye half a century ago... <laughs> I took its readership to several million within the first year. I had to give it up in order to devote myself full-time to the World Health Organization. I'm still a very valued friend of the current editor. And between ourselves, I contribute at least half the magazine each issue. Janet Street Porter. Bloody harsh. So funny, I forgot to laugh. <laughs> Sorry, guys, but that's my topical reaction to the so-called big-name satirical magazine, Private Eye. It drives me around the bend and makes me physically sick the way they go on like I own the bloody place. They wouldn't know a bloody joke if it was shoved up their fucking arse. <laughs> and all they do is indulge in schoolboy humour, if you can call it that, and it frankly gets on my tits. I mean, where's the sophistication? <laughs> Enough of ourselves, back to politics. The big fight of the year between David Cameron and Boris Johnson. <laughs> Luckily, Boris writes for Private Eye and gave us his thoughts after the big Tory conference in Manchester this year. What ho, readers? Uh, you, probably, you probably saw me making my speech in ghastly Manchester uh, to liven up what was otherwise, let's face it, a pretty dire Tory shindy. <laughs> I don't know disrespect to my old chum, Dave, but frankly, he's not exactly setting the town on fire at the moment, or even the Indian restaurant like we used to do. <laughs> when, when we were up at the varsity yonks ago, his fellow members of the Bullers. Uh, poor old Dave, whom he can't seem to put a foot right, but now he's gone and upset all the women folk blah, by patronising them, blah, yeah, and, and, and telling them that they're frustrated and they need to calm down. Mil point, Dave! Yeah, blah. <laughs> what the Tory party needs, if you ask me, is a leader. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Is a leader. Thank you. Yeah. What they need is a leader who really appeals to the ladies, who makes them laugh, gives them a good time, and makes, makes damn sure that they're not left frustrated, if you know what I mean. Poor. <laughs> uh, no. It's not calming down the ladies needed. In my experience, they need to be revved up a bit. Yeah. I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but who better to do the job than Brother Boris? who's made more women happy in his time than poor old Dave has done U-turns. Oh. Oh, no, no offence, Dave, but you know, these latest polls show you bombing with the fairer sex are all pointing to one conclusion. Uh, it's time for dismal Dave to give way to yours truly as leader of the Totty Party. I mean the Tory party. <laughs> oh. Uh, in deference to Boris, Private Eye tries to um, put a lot of Latin um, into its pages, largely in terms of the honorary degrees that are awarded. We print the Latin text in full. Uh, Kylie Minogue, you will know, was given an honorary degree earlier this year from Anglia Ruskin University, formerly the Chelmsford World of Leather. <laughs> <laughs> 
we have the Latin text here. I'd just like to um, share it with you. Salutamus Kyliam Minogam, Cantoram Antipodiensem et Regina Popa. <laughs> Autem Thespiana Celebrissima per Opera Saponica Australiensis Nebori. Et Sorore Dani Minogue, Junicatrice Ex Factorum. Kylia cantatit multicarmina famosae, per exempla ego sim fortunata, 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 fortunata. <laughs> Et na 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 non possum te expellere mea caput. <laughs> Minoga majora symbola sexua, per glutea maxima pertissima. <laughs> Sed autum icono homosexualorum ab judi garlando. <laughs> Num Kylia alumnia Anglia Ruskinar, Gaudiamus Igita. <laughs> Time to stay up market and head for Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> now, the big event this year, you will all know, is that uh, Bruce Forsyth was awarded a knighthood. And at Private Eye, we have our own resident poet to cover these occasions. He's called William Rees McGonagall. Uh, a Scottish poet, probably the worst ever. Um, and this is his verse on the award of a knighthood to Mr. Bruce Forsyth. Twas in the year of 2011 that at the advanced age of nearly 87, Mr. Bruce Forsyth, after waiting so long, was finally informed he'd been given a gong. <laughs> For many a moon, the nation had protested Bruce's right to be dubbed by the Queen a very perfect gentle knight. Arise, Sir Brucey. Was what they wanted to hear, but they were disappointed year after year after year. For who would deserve more to enter the nation's hall of fame than the long-serving compare of the generation game? <laughs> Not since Marie Curie discovered radium had there been such a triumph as Bruce since Sunday night at the <laughs> London Palladium. <laughs> and who could be more worthy of becoming a knight than the brilliant presenter of Play Your Cards Right. <laughs> While even in old age, he remained entrancing as the twinkling host of Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> but there was one thing above all for which Brucey deserved special praise, namely his witty and truly unforgettable catchphrase. Nice to see you, to see you, nice. The whole nation could repeat it if asked in a trice. Old men in pubs, young girls on meeting, they all could repeat his celebrated greeting. And each time they said it, they chortled anew. To see you, nice, nice to see you. And for this truly amazing feat, only one honour was apt and meet. A visit to the palace, a tap with a sword. That was to be Sir Brucey's fitting reward. Have you come far? Her Majesty would say, and all the crowd would shout, Hooray! 
Nice to see you. She might conceivably add. To see you, nice. Would be the answer to make all her subjects glad. Sticking with the BBC. Short of a pen? No, no. Carry on. Austerity. Um, sticking with the BBC, they've had a very, very difficult year, and they've tried to mount, um, tried to react to the challenge by moving large amounts of the BBC empire around. Uh, we got a, a particularly good leak um, about how this is going to play out in the forthcoming year, which we then printed. Radio 4 audience must move north, BBC is told. <laughs> A shock report on the BBC's radio output has revealed the astonishing fact that the majority of listeners to Radio 4 are white, middle class, live in the south of England, are keen on gardening, and like listening to the archers. <laughs> Says the report's author... It's a national scandal to which there can only be one remedy. The entire Radio 4 audience must be forced to relocate to the north of England. <laughs> paid for by the BBC at a modest cost of £5 trillion. <laughs> he continued... Of course there will be protests from the usual disgusted of Tunbridge Wells Brigade, saying they don't want to move to Manchester, but they must be ignored in the cause of building a diversity template that reflects our national audience demographic. Asked what he meant by this sentence, he replied... I've no idea. I'll have to get back to you after lunch. <laughs> The report also calls for a major shake-up of other parts of the BBC network, which are perceived to be over-serving a particular audience sector. It blasts the BBC's Radio 1, calling it... Obsessed with young people, and made up entirely of pop music, which does not appeal to the majority of white, middle-class <laughs> listeners who live in the south of England. Strong criticism was also levelled at the BBC's Asian network, for appealing only to Asian listeners living in Britain. The report stated... It is time this cultural ghetto was opened up to a much wider audience, such as Afro-Caribbean women, the Inuit community, <laughs> Scientologists, and members of the white middle class living in the south of England who are keen on gardening and listening to the archers. <laughs> the BBC, thank you very much. <laughs> if we're sounding a bit self-centred and parochial, Private Eye does try and cover the big events abroad. Uh, this year, Osama bin Laden was killed um, by American special forces, and we recorded the reaction of some of the major figures in the world to that success. President Obama himself. My fellow Americans, the long night is over. The dawn has broken. Darkness flees in the face of the eternal light. But there must be no triumphalism, no brandishing of the trophies of victory. Yes, I got him, and W didn't vote for me! <laughs> President Rambo Obama, Geronimo! Reaction from Lord Fellows of Downton. <sighs> <laughs> the Bin Ladens were never quite top draw in so Saudi society. And the fact that Osama's father was in horror of horrors 
the construction industry rather speaks for itself. I certainly would never have placed him next to a duchess at dinner, as he would probably have eaten his sheep's eyes with the wrong fork. <laughs> Former President George W. Bush. <laughs> I'm delighted that Obama's dead. I never liked the guy. And it's not just because he's a Muslim. And give those Navy SEALs a fish from me. <laughs> Muhammad Al Fayed. Forget the fucking SEALs! It was the Duke of Edinburgh who killed him! Yes, don't feel the fucking Greek himself! He killed him! driving a white Fiat helicopter into the compound in order to stop the Muslim Osama bin Laden marrying fucking Pippa Middleton. <laughs> yes, it fucking was. <laughs> Could we have Craig Brown back uh, to the stage, this time channeling um, the author, uh, Margaret Rhodes, who was a former woman of the Royal Bedchamber and a personal assistant to HM, the Queen Mother. Margaret Rhodes, her diaries. The Queen Mother had simple tastes. She took every opportunity to have lunch al fresco. She simply adored eating out of doors in the Scottish Highlands. If rain looked likely, she would simply get the staff to bring a suitable shelter up the hill, plus chairs, oak dining table, <laughs> silver, and so forth. Such fun, she would say, urging them on with a stick she had sharpened. <laughs> she had sharpened with her trusty penknife. Her staff were all utterly devoted. They would have worked for nothing, but being an angel, she insisted on paying them, largely in boiled sweets. <laughs> Those who had served her for over 50 years would be given barley sugar. The rest, Fox's Glacier Mints. At the turn of the century, many of them were well over 90 years of age, but she never allowed them to retire, insisted it would make them bone lazy. Every now and then, one old retainer or another would collapse and die in service. But she was always most sympathetic, even if it had, even if it had involved a spillage at table. <laughs> These things happen, she would smile, ringing a discreet bell attached to the table to summon the controller of the royal coffins to make the necessary arrangements. <laughs> I was in my 80th year when carrying her piggyback over a roaring Scottish burn, I stupidly slipped and fell. Luckily, the Queen Mother fell on top of me and so didn't get wet. She stayed there without a word of complaint until rescued by a kindly ghillie. I remained underwater for a good minute or two. <laughs> so wasn't able to offer my apologies until later. <laughs> From that moment on, I always kept a pair of goggles and a snorkel about my person 
just in case. Great round! Time for a very quick round of Dumb Britain with Anne Robinson again. All of these from The Weakest Link. In vocabulary, which O is a word that specifically refers to a person between 80 and 89 years of age? Old. <laughs> a popular coastal resort on the Bristol Channel is known as Western Super what? Market. What was the name of the single-issue party formed by Sir James Goldsmith in 1997 to fight that year's general election? The Liberal Democrats. <laughs> in 2006, the Star Wars character voted the most annoying film character ever was Jar Jar what? Gabor. <laughs> in which English county is the Cornish language spoken? Devon. <laughs> The phrase, workers of the world unite, is inscribed on the tomb of which political thinker in Highgate Cemetery, North London? Enoch Powell. <laughs> An old Harrovian was a member of which famous public school? Eton. <laughs> Three of the four Olympic throwing events are the discus, shot putt and hammer. What's the other one? Long jump. <laughs> Which American Civil War general had the nickname Stonewall? Custard. Which Sunday newspaper once ran the headline World War II bomber found on moon? The Times. In maths, what is 20 minus 8? Pass. The road known as Watling Street, which now incorporates part of the A5, was built by which ancient civilization? Apes. Goodbye. <laughs> and finally, a last word, it has to be um, to the eyes long-term um, uh, uh, correspondent Sir Herbert Gusset. Uh, he writes to the Telegraph about all sorts of things. This letter he wrote about private eye at 50 itself. Sir Herbert Gusset writing to the Telegraph. <laughs> Sir, as someone who has been a loyal reader of Private Eye ever since I purchased the very first issue exactly 100 years ago this week, I think I am entitled to comment on the fulsome tributes which have recently been paid to the magazine by such political luminaries of our time as Lord Hattersley, Mrs. Edwina Curry, and Nancy Doolittle. Nancy Doolittle. <laughs> to those of us who remember the leading part played by Private Eye in bringing down the government of Mr. Neville Chamberlain, not to mention that wonderfully long-running satirical common column, Mrs. Attlee's Diaries, <laughs> the sad decline 
of this once great national institution is hardly a matter for celebration. Yes, no wonder our current Prime Minister, Mr. Blair, sleeps easily in his bed. <laughs> Without giving a thought to these puerile successors to the great founding fathers of private eye, Dr. Jonathan Swift, and the late lamented Sir David Frost. <laughs> As for the so-called celebration of 50 years of private eye in the National Theatre, why on earth could they not have staged a pageant more in keeping with this country's contribution to world history and culture? Where, I should like to know, were the band of the Coldstream Guards? Where was the fly-past of Spitfires, Hurricanes and Sop with Camels? Where, where, where were the serried ranks of Boy Scouts girl guides, and members of the Women's Institute. Where are Morris dancers? The envy of the world. Where are celebrated promenaders waving their Union Jacks as they sang Land of Hope and Glory? And where, above all, was Her Majesty the Queen, surrounded by her beloved corgis, a supreme symbol of Britain's satiric achievement down the ages. Yours faithfully, Sir Herbert Gusset. Gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Um, we have slightly overrun, which I apologise. Um, all I have uh, to say is that we will be signing books, as you may have spotted. Um, we'll be signing copies of this year's Private Eye Annual, uh, the 2011 Annual, and the author of the book, um, Private Eye, The First 50 Years, Adam McQueen, um, an excellent um, account of the first 50 years of the magazine, will be signing books of that particular book, the um, coffee table A to Z um, in the foyer as well. So there will be writers from Private Eye, Nick Newman, Tom and Nev, Craig Brown, myself. We will be there to sign your books shortly. But first, and I think probably rather better after the plug, may I thank very much indeed my fantastic cast. <laughs>